Our faith is not built on an idea or a concept or an ideology. Our faith is based on a real person who lived in the Middle East just over 2,000 years ago. Jesus was born, he lived, he died, he was crucified, and he rose after three days. Jesus is alive today, and he always will be. Christianity is not an airy-fairy concept. It's based on historical events. Of course, the linchpin of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus. If that didn't happen, if that wasn't in every sense historical, our faith would be in vain. Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, wrote, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. The resurrection is the most important event, the most important historical event in all of Scripture. In fact, it's uh, the most important historical event ever. Uh, But the historicity of the people and the events surrounding Jesus is also important. And we know that Luke was a diligent historian. He was only interested in facts. And Luke begins this section about John the Baptist with quite a lot of historic detail. It's a reminder that we're reading about real events situated in time and space. And we're familiar with this. If a, uh, the, the, uh, the way that a story begins uh, gives a good indication as to the kind of story it is. Uh, if a story begins once upon a time, you know that it's probably a fairy tale. Uh, or if it begins a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away... That'll be Star Wars, right? Some spotter's probably going to tell me that uh, the books don't begin like that. I don't know, I've not read them, but the films do. Uh, Luke begins this account by placing these events in their historical context. Uh, But this uh, introduction also serves to place John at the end of a long line of Old Testament prophets. Uh, The prophetic books of the Old Testament uh, often begin with a historic overview Uh, For example, compare the beginning of Luke chapter 3 to the beginning of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai or Zechariah, and you'll see the similarities. Uh, Luke is telling us that John is the last in the line of Old Testament prophets. John the Baptist, if you like, is a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Uh, But Luke's introduction serves a third purpose. It reminds us that from a Jewish perspective, all was not well with the world. Uh, The known world was uh, ruled by the tyrant Tiberius Caesar, who was already being worshipped as a god in the eastern uh, side of the empire. Uh, Rome was in control, or so it seemed. Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, which of course included Jerusalem. Imagine that from a Jewish perspective, an uncircumcised Gentile governor of the holy city, Jerusalem, uh, a total affront. And Herod and Philip were ruling their respective provinces with Roman permission, but no one really believed that they had the right to rule in the first place. So from a Jewish perspective, the world was in a total mess. God had been silent for hundreds of years, and the people longed for a new word from God. The Old Testament prophets had spoken of a time of renewal 
when God would restore his people, but no one really knew what that would look like. And onto this stage steps John the Baptist with his message of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. He came to prepare the way for Israel's long-awaited Messiah. He came to prepare the way for Jesus. And there are parallels for the church today. Uh, During Advent, we look forward to celebrating the birth of Christ, but we also look forward with hope to his second coming. We see all that is wrong with the world, and we want Jesus to return and make everything right. And just as John prepared the Jewish people to receive their saviour, we too must be prepared for the return of Christ. Jesus made this uh, very clear with so many of his parables. The day and the hour of his return is unknown. So be ready. Keep your lamps burning. Uh, Don't get caught sleeping. Persevere in the work that you've been given. Prepare yourselves. Jesus' return cannot and must not be something that we're kind of vaguely aware of and then we just forget about. For me, something that fits into that category, uh, uh, something that uh, I'm aware of but I forget about, would be birthdays. Uh, I'm aware that all my friends and family have birthdays. I know about these things called birthdays. Um, I remember my immediate family, Tissa, Isabel, and Caleb, but with everyone else, it's all a bit hazy. Birthdays are not at the forefront of my mind, and so uh, I'm not very proactive about them. And I'm very thankful for Tissa, who remembers everyone's birthdays and reminds me. Uh, the problem is, the way I think about birthdays is the way that many of us think about Jesus' second coming. We're aware that it's going to happen, but we don't really do anything about it. We don't prepare for it. And broadly speaking, we prepare for Jesus' second coming in the same way that John told the Jews to prepare for his first. And it can be summarized with a single word, repentance. That means we're going in one direction and we turn and we start going in another direction. And, and Luke links John's message to the message of Isaiah the prophet. We just have verses 3 to 5 back on the screen. I'll read those again. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Uh, This is clearly a prophetic message about John the Baptist. Uh, But it's worth noting that when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it normally just gives a a snippet of a much larger text that it wants us to bear in mind. So if you see the Old Testament quoted in the New, it's always worth going back to the the, uh, original source in the Old Testament and just reading either side of it, because the chances are you're meant to bring it all forward into the context that the New Testament writer is uh, writing about. Uh, Luke quotes Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5, uh, but I think the passage in question is really Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 11. It's a passage that speak, God speaks to his people uh, at a time of despair and hopelessness, and it begins, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And it includes the prophecy of the one 
who will prepare the way for the Messiah, the one who will prepare the way for Jesus, that voice calling in the wilderness. And you remember that John lived out in the desert, so people had to go into the wilderness to see him. And there he was out there uh, wearing his uh, clothes made of camel hair, eating locusts and honey. He was quite eccentric, quite a strange character. Sometimes it's not a bad thing to be strange. Uh, And the passage ends with the sovereign Lord coming in power. And if you want to know what that power looks like, then refer back to our Christmas Day sermon. And finally, it speaks of a shepherd who will tend his flock, who is clearly Jesus, the good shepherd. So it's important to understand uh, what Luke is pointing to with this uh, couple of verses that he quotes from Isaiah, a lot more than you get just from those two verses. Uh, But the part that's quoted has a double meaning. Firstly, there's the literal meaning. It talks about the road being straightened and leveled out. Uh, There are no dips, hills, twists, or turns. You don't welcome a king along a little goat track that's winding its way around a mountain. You prepare a straight, even road, a good road. Uh, And that is the literal meaning. Uh, And it accords with uh, ancient Near Eastern ideas about what it would mean to welcome a king. But it also speaks of being prepared morally and spiritually. Repentance means straightening your life out. You get rid of the crookedness and the unevenness. And so John's baptism was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And it wasn't the act of immersion going under the water that resulted in forgiveness. Rather, it was the repentant heart that led the person to be baptized in the first place. And of course, forgiveness is possible through Jesus' death and resurrection, which works both ways through history, both forwards and backwards. So in the hope that God was doing something new, people went out into the wilderness to hear John preach. And when they got there, this is what they heard. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Winsome. That's a great way to speak to your congregation. Uh, Have you ever been to church and uh, and been told that you're a bunch of snakes? I hope not. Uh, But sometimes we have to be direct. Jesus was. Look at Matthew 3 and the way that Jesus spoke uh, to the Pharisees. Uh, Very direct. Um, Harsh almost. But um, when Jesus is that direct, he's always uh, speaking to the uh, proud, arrogant, pompous religious leaders who are leading everyone astray. But John goes on, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, if someone has repented and turned back to God, there ought to be evidence of that in their life. The fruit that John speaks of is a person's character, their thought life, their words, their actions, the way that they live. And Jesus um, touched on the same thing in, in Luke verse uh, chapter 6. Uh, Jesus says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. Uh, Jesus is not saying that Christians will be perfect. That's pushing the analogy too far. I mean, a good, healthy uh, apple tree can produce uh, some fruit that isn't the best. But generally, a healthy tree will produce good fruit. And if a person has turned from darkness to light, we ought to be able to see that in the way that they live. And over the course of their life, 
it'll become more and more evident. John warns the people, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The people were inclined to think, we're Jewish. We're descended from Abraham. That means we're right with God. Hooray, we've qualified. And John says to them, your descent from Abraham means precisely nothing. And today, there are people who think, I go to church every week. I say my prayers. I'm a good Protestant or I'm a good Catholic. And John would say, if your religion isn't changing your heart and your character and the way that you live, it's just dead religion. And you're engaged in a very dangerous form of self-deception. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. These trees are obviously representative of people. And in 21st century Australia, we don't like to hear this. We, we struggle with this, but it's there, and we have to deal with it. Those who rebel against God will not be allowed to continue doing so forever. There are eternal consequences to our actions. The crowd heard this and they were rightly alarmed. What should we do, they said. It's a bit like when you're a child and you and your mate realize that you're about to get into trouble and you you say, what do we do? And the answer is invariably, hide or run. And our natural inclination is to run and hide from God, but it doesn't work because God can see exactly what is going on in our hearts. So the crowd say to John, what should we do? And notice John doesn't say, pray a lot. Make sure you have your daily devotions. Get involved in a small group. I'm not discouraging any of those things. They're important. But John focuses elsewhere. He gives very practical advice about what it means to live according to God's kingdom values. Interestingly, his advice has a lot to do with greed and self-interest and our attitude to money because the hardest thing for us to let go of is materialism. When the crowd asked, what should we do? John replied, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. In other words, look out for others. Be generous. Don't just hoard up the stuff that you have. Find ways to bless other people. And sometimes people say, well, you know, I'm not very well off myself. I I can't afford to be generous. Well, according to this, if you've got more than one shirt and you've got food to eat, then you can be generous. The tax collectors asked, what should we do? They collected tax on behalf of Rome, and they had their quotas that they needed to fulfill. There was a certain amount of tax which they had to raise. Uh, But in most cases, they weren't restricted in how much they could levy, and they had the authority of the Roman Empire behind them. Uh, So it's not surprising that this system was rife with corruption. John told them, don't collect any more than you are required to. Then some soldiers asked the same question, what should we do? These soldiers uh, probably belonged to King Herod. It's unlikely that a group of Roman soldiers would go out into the desert to hear a Jewish prophet. And again, soldiers were in a position of power that was very open to abuse. Uh, Think of them as a very corrupt police force, constantly taking bribes, 
fitting people up, stitching them up just to line their own profit uh, pockets. And John told them, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. This is very practical advice. And it all amounts to loosening their grip on money and material possessions. What's more, they have been asked to turn away from what was probably normal practice. Tax collectors charge more than they ought to. Well, that was normal. Who wouldn't? Soldiers made a bit of extra money on the side. It was just one of those things. And there are things like that in our culture. Things that we excuse because everybody does it. We say to ourselves, everybody puts a few extra items on their tax return or insurance claim. It's not really dishonest. Or everybody takes the odd bit of stationery home from work. Or everybody pulls a sickie once in a while so that they don't have to use up their annual leave. I mean, those are fairly minor examples, although they're not minor at all. They're only minor, uh, relatively speaking. But all sorts of things get justified on the grounds that everybody is doing it. To repent means going against the flow and living according to Jesus' kingdom values. And at the end of the day, we either accept Jesus' values or we accept the world's values. But if we follow the prevailing culture, our values will be changing all the time. Uh, Even in my lifetime, I've seen a massive shift in the values of our culture. And we delude ourselves by thinking that the latest values, the latest way of thinking is the best or the most sound. But logically speaking, why would that be the case? In the early 1800s in England, slavery was generally accepted and abortion after 18 weeks carried the death penalty. Today, slavery is rightly abhorred, it's illegal, and abortion is generally accepted. Society is constantly changing its mind about what is right and wrong. Society is constantly changing its mind about what is right and wrong. The Catholic philosopher G.K. Chesterton said this. He said, a new philosophy generally means in practice the praise of some old vice. Repentance means turning away from all that we know to be wrong, regardless of the tendencies of our culture. We adopt the values of the kingdom and we reject the values of the world whenever and wherever they conflict with kingdom values. John preached that repentance means a visible change to the way we live our life. And he preached so well that people started to wonder if he might be the Messiah, whereupon John immediately pointed them to Jesus. He said, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals are not not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The Old Testament prophets predicted that in the end times, uh, God would pour out his spirit on all people. And you often hear people say, oh, we're in the end times, by which they normally mean uh, the last sort of 50 years. Uh, But actually, from a biblical perspective, everything from Jesus onwards is the end times. And God has poured his spirit out on his people, the church. Uh, That first happened on the day of Pentecost. And then there's fire. Fire purifies. 
But in 1 Corinthians 3, it says this, their work, that's our work as Christians, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Uh, So fire also has to do with judgment, and, and John says as much in verse 17. He says his winnowing fork, he's talking about the Messiah, Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. We are waiting for Jesus to return. He will judge the nations. And that includes us. We will face final judgment. However, anyone no matter who they are and what their background, anyone who puts their faith and their trust in Jesus will be declared not guilty. And we're not saved by being generous or by refusing to defraud people. Rather, the fruit, our good deeds, the way that we live, is evidence that we have truly bowed the knee to Jesus and made him Lord of our lives. The fruit in your life reveals whether true repentance has taken place. That is what John was saying. It's as blunt as that. And he focused, and we can't deny that he focused on materialism. And yes, there are people who appear to be producing good fruit, but uh, in reality, it's rotten. That's not our concern. Each one of us should be concerned with the fruit that we're producing. What's that like? And yes, we can take into account that we've all had a different starting point. Everyone's journey of faith is different. Life is messy and complicated. Uh, Sometimes we take two steps forward and one back. We make mistakes. We make bad life choices. But overall, what kind of fruit are we producing? And is it fruit in keeping with repentance? John prepared people for Jesus' first appearance. We are preparing ourselves and one another for Jesus' return. What will Jesus find in us? Will he find the good fruit of generosity and selflessness or the rotten fruit of materialism and greed? Let us produce fruit in keeping with repentance and let us continue to allow the Holy Spirit to change and transform us into the people and the church that God wants us to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, recognize that uh, this, this message from John the Baptist is not an easy one to hear, uh, but it is just as relevant to us as it was to his original audience, and we pray that we will heed it, that we will identify the areas of our lives that are not right and that we will work to amend them. Father, we recognize that we're not saved by being good, by being generous or by not defrauding people. We're saved because your son Jesus died and rose again to offer us the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. But we pray, Father, that our our works, our deeds will be evidence that we have turned 
that we have turned away from all that we know to be wrong and turned to you. Father, help us to be the people that you have called us to be. Help us to change uh, day by day, week by week, month by month. Help us not to be satisfied with treading water or standing still. Help us to keep making progress and gaining ground so that we can become more like your son Jesus. And we ask this in his precious name. Amen.